0: Welcome, we're Phil and Jen. Welcome to our podcast, and we are starting a new season today.
1: It's called We Can Change, and we're having hopeful conversations with people making beautiful change in the world. And before we jump into that, um, we wanna share a couple of things that are happening. We just finished up the Bible workshop, the uh, How to Set the Bible Free workshop, which was like a four-week series of, um, we were gathering every Thursday night, with different people it was so uh such a meaningful time with i feel like such a great discussion people were having these huge realizations and i think um as people were coming away <laughs> they were saying things like um that the time put put into words something that they've been feeling for a long time or that they felt expanded or hopeful coming out of it. And really what we realized is that it drew up a lot more questions and desires for people than we thought was going to happen. And we realized that we're actually not done with this yet. So more to come on that. It was exciting. Yeah, It almost felt like we tapped into some sort of deep well, and then we just like tried to put a cap on it. um, (laughs) And we realized, Oh, like we're not, (laughs) we're not done with this yet. We need to keep doing some stuff with that. So we'll keep you posted on that more coming soon. Uh,
0: Also, We're doing sessions and so we just wanted to share that here with uh, all of you that are listening is uh, we're doing this thing that like there's been like kind of curated offerings that we've uh, been talking about on the podcast and on the website Um, these kind of more events and experiences but uh, we're also doing sessions which is where we have been meeting with people one-on-one or even like together as a couple or um Kind of in different settings, and it's the the idea is to provide spiritual guidance and coaching or consulting for like their personal and spiritual lives. And so, um, for us, uh, the sessions that we do entail like our own like unique sort of paradigm rooted in um, just education that we've had through psychology and divinity degrees, as well as just um, like twenty years of experience leading spiritual communities out of this incredibly rich historical faith tradition. Uh, And like walking alongside countless people, um, helping them grow. And so uh, we've been meeting with people weekly or um, monthly or bi-monthly. And it's just one of our favorite things to do is to meet people where they're at and help guide and encourage them uh, in their growth, Um, whether that's in their own life or their marriage or their relationships or even in their spiritual journey. And so um, just wanted to invite you to that. If that's something that you're interested in, um, you can go to the website at philandjenwood.com dot com and uh there's a thing at the top for sessions you can uh check it out and let us know you're interested
1: yep and on the form you can kind of put what you're looking for as well so um how often you would want to meet and what you're looking to get out of it we'll get back to you about that and then Uh, we had a marriage retreat lined up in November, which we, unfortunately, our space is no longer available. So we, um, are rescheduling that we're working on getting new dates for that for the new year. And we will get that out to you ASAP as soon as we have that scheduled. And, um, those of you that signed up, you should have received a refund. Um, those went out and we are excited about doing that in the new year. So
0: yeah, more to come on the marriage retreat and then, um, of course, there's this new season that we're doing in the podcast, and uh, we had this idea that we wanted to take a whole season of just conversations uh, with with people that are making um, and inspiring beautiful change in the world, because it's just so encouraging and inspiring uh, to everyone to, to see change being made, to see people actually living it out, not just um, dreaming about it or talking about it, but actually... Um, living it out in the world and so uh the new season is called we can change and uh, we'll be talking to different really interesting people in the next several weeks um and then jen and i will be speaking into this idea as well and we're uh excited about the ways that we can all draw hope and and imagination for how to make a more beautiful world by hearing the way that other people are doing it in their own lives and so for this first episode of our third season of we can change um, We have an incredible guest joining us. His name is Frank Schaefer. Um, Frank Schaefer is a lot of things. He's had a wild, fascinating life. Um, He's a New York Times bestselling author, more than a dozen books. Um, He has a book that just released um, that is called Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy. Uh, Frank is... Uh, a survivor of both polio as well as a fundamentalist evangelical childhood. Um, He's an acclaimed writer that overcame severe dyslexia. He's homeschooled and a self-taught documentary movie director. He is a feature film director for low-budget Hollywood features that he himself has described as pretty terrible. Um, He is also uh, an acclaimed author of fiction as well as nonfiction, as well as an artist with a loyal following. Uh, of collectors internationally that own many of his paintings. Uh, Frank has been a frequent guest on the Rachel Maddow show on NBC. He's appeared on Oprah. He's been interviewed by Terry Gross on NPR's Fresh Air. Uh, He's been on the Today Show, BBC News. He's been on a lot of media outlets. He's a sought-after speaker. Uh, He's lectured at a wide range of venues, uh, and he's the real deal. He lives the stuff that he talks about, and we had the chance to meet Frank uh, about a month ago in New York City at this small rooftop event. and man, we just really loved him and we had the chance to read his new book and it's really good and uh, we just encourage you to buy it and uh, we're excited to have Frank join us today.
1: Yeah, so let's get started.
0: Frank, thank you Hi. so much for joining us. My pleasure, thank you. Country. Thank yeah. you. Um, we we're just talking about how we're at very, very different times right now. We're we're up at five thirty, and you're uh, more in the swing of the day. That's um, it. But
2: I get up early here too. So you know, we're we're today we all got up, and you were mentioning you have you're taking a one of a kid to a surf meet. Yeah, it is. This <laughs> well, that's great because I'm on the East Coast, Cal, you know, Massachusetts, and the leaves are turning. And you're doing a very California thing. I mean, hey, it's having true. a child who's going to a surf meet fits in perfectly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> like um, I actually was reading that in your book at what time you get up in the morning to write and that I want to talk about that in a minute but before we do just thanks so much for joining us and for being with us today Um, we'd love the time that we got to spend with you a few weeks ago in New York and um, just getting to hear your story and everything you had to share there and then obviously your um, your new book fall in love have children stay put save the planet be happy Um, I love it I love what you have to say there and um, Jen and I were really enjoying it and so we're just excited to jump in and be with you this morning. Thanks, man.
2: Well, I really appreciate it. The book's just come out. It's for sale now. You know, up to this point, I've been talking with people uh, begging them to pre-order and drive my mm-hmm. Amazon numbers. And now I don't have to say anything about pre-anything. It's out. It's in out. stores and it's on Amazon. So they can just order it. Congrats! Oh, that's got to feel so good. Yeah. yeah. You awesome. To, you to... Okay.
1: So I'm going to jump right in then. Um, you start the book out with this question that we just Love, And it's something that we've been asking this in this last season. Um, And we recently stepped out. We were leading a church that we planted for 12 and a half years. And we just have made this huge life change. And so we've been asking this question that you, the book starts out with, which is what matters most. Mm -hmm. And then you tell the story about your granddaughter, which is so sweet. And how she basically like challenges you on like t- the way you're spending your time with the writing and traveling so much, you're kind of like complaining about mm. the traveling. She's like, why don't you just write less and travel less? Yeah. <laughs> and then you lead into this, um, this great line where you say that you'd rather be a mother. Mm. Um, can you explain, can you speak to that and explain what you mean by that?
2: Yeah, well, the first thing to say is, is the next paragraph I explained that what I'm talking about has nothing to do with gender. Yeah. Uh, or roles we assign, or biology, or whether you're a parent of a child or not, and has everything to do with the intention of caregiving and what you find there. And of course, this, this whole story in the book is couched in the fact that for the last 13 years now, Jeannie and I have been doing the childcare for our three youngest of five grandchildren. They happen to live across the street. And so when Lucy was born her parents, my son, John, and his wife, Becky, were living in our house. And for the first two years, you know, we literally were her nanny while they went to work full time outside the house. So they would, they were home. And then when they would leave to go to work, uh, we, we would take care of this baby. So she started her life here. And what I discovered that I talk about in the book, of course, is that I was surprised that this second chance at being a parent, because I've raised three children with Jeannie, they're grown and out of the house. Was not only fulfilling, but it was almost as if I had finally found the the best years, best days, weeks, and months of my life. And I was starting to wonder, well, why why am I so happy doing this instead of feeling put upon? You know, I would meet people, and I would they would say, "What are you doing?" And I'd say, "Well, I know what you mean. Um, I should tell you, I'm a writer." And I do this and that. And I do college speaking tours. This is all pre-COVID, of course, many years ago. But in fact, I I started telling people sort of jokingly, uh, you know, well, if you really want to know what I spend my day doing, I'm a young mom because I have a young (laughs) young child. I'm taking care of a newborn baby. Okay. You know, I'm in my (laughs) 60s. That's then. Now I'm pushing 70. Um, So, you know, I was in my late 50s. And, and a guy in late fifties, who's a writer, who's had a few things and bestsellers and this and that doesn't usually describe himself as a nanny, but yeah. I really did. And I wasn't joking. And I guess it all came to, uh, you know, the fore with me when I had a friend in California, who's an entertainment lawyer in Santa Monica that I'd worked with on a lot of movies. And he's a good friend of mine, but he called up one day and said, well, what are you working on? And I, and, and um, you know, what's your next novel going to be or your next book? Because I earn my living as a writer. And I said, look, I'm not working on anything right now. I am taking care of my youngest grandchildren. And his response was, well, can't they get a nanny? As mm-hmm. if <laughs> somehow yeah. they, my kids were imposing on me. Oh.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And and I came back and I said, look, the big, you know, right now, this this happened when Lucy was starting in kindergarten, I said, you know, one of the things I love doing is I hang out with the other young mothers and I didn't even think what I was saying. And he came back and said, what did you just say? What do you mean the other young mothers? And I said, well, oh, well I put it wrong, but what I mean is, and I had to sort of explain. So basically this started a whole train of thought and that was, look, the most pleasure I'm having, nobody told me in the in the 60s when you're supposed to be cool and hip and all this stuff, that the most pleasure I would get in life in every department of my relationship with my wife and as a parent was going to be with grandchildren when I was quote unquote Mm -hmm. getting older as I would have seen it then. Nobody told me that um, actually our evolutionary path biologically has made all of us into caregivers first. Nobody, uh, you know, is, is born in terms of the human race having evolved to want a corner office as a CEO of a company ahead of everything else. What we are born to crave is love. What Mm -hmm. we are born to crave is relationships. What we are born to crave is the, is what we get from caregiving and being cared for. That's what we crave. So take this interview here we're doing on your podcast. Um, If you had a guest on that basically just sat down and listed in cold, hard, dry facts, all the degrees they'd gotten, every achievement they had made, told you how much money they had in the bank, explained, you know, talked about their hopes and dreams only in terms of material success, what they hoped to be able to afford to buy next year, the boat they were making payments on. You would hate this person in about 30 seconds (laughs) because... (laughs) yeah. Human connection is not about Mm. that bullshit. Human connection is about human connection. Mm. Uh, It's about the fact that a few minutes ago you were telling me you're taking one of your kids to a surf meet. Well, I connect with that because this afternoon I'll be picking up Nora at school and taking her to a certain play park. Our human connection is what makes this conversation possible. So when I talk about the fact that I'd rather be a mother I then define it and say, look, I'm not using this in a gender specific way, uh, let alone, you know, in terms of any of the issues we have facing us today and trans rights and all the rest of it. I'm using this as a description of caregiving, a word that encapsulates that. And so it comes from that experience of having grandchildren. Of course, that's what my book comes out of, too. And I know that's a long answer to the question, but (laughs) you've Mm -hmm. cut straight to the heart of what I've spent the last six years doing writing this book. Yeah. And again, I would just go back to it one more time. It has nothing to do with the sense of duty of trying to help my children have careers. And so I've got this burden of childcare. It's exactly the opposite. Right now, all joking aside, I'm, I'm running out of babies again because Nora <laughs> is in second grade. And so all I get to do is the school pickups and, mm-hmm. and, and cook for her every evening and on the weekends, my grandchildren come down and see me, but they're all in school again. COVID yeah. is over. So the luxury of having them all with me all the time has, got, has evaporated as everybody's gone back to school. And for me, it's like, okay, there's other stuff to do. Now I've got this book to sell and I've got this, I'm going to do a podcast this morning and talk about my new book and try to drive the numbers on Amazon a little bit. And essentially, you know, if two lines were forming to try to promote my book or play with Nora, I would not be sitting here. So mm-hmm. in terms of priorities, um, it has nothing to do with doing what's right or, or trying to help your family. Although those things all weigh into it when you get impatient and tired, which you do, and then you stick with it. Cause you know, you're doing what's right, but big strokes, I'm talking about pleasure. I'm talking about joy. And for me, uh, you know, caring the relationship I have with grandchildren is golden, nothing else mm. Nothing else even comes close. So that's a that's kind of a rambling look at this. Well, but thanks for answering the asking the question.
0: How much of that was happening before the pandemic, and then how much of that like intensified during the pandemic? Well, I feel like the, the pandemic changed the everything is, for everybody.
2: Before the pandemic, it was very it was intense because there was always one who wasn't in school up till that point or in kindergarten. So we were doing full-time childcare for somebody almost up to the beginning of the pandemic because Nora's in second grade now and she had just gone into kindergarten and then that got uh, cut short by the pandemic. But um, then the pandemic turned our home into Camp Schaefer and they were here 24 seven. I mean, they (laughs) slept at home, but they were here all day. And so then we did even more sort of organized activities. Before that, it was just whatever comes up and so on. I renovated the barn with my grandson, Jack. Lucy took cooking lessons from me because my hobby is cooking and has a mm-hmm. notebook, a notebook full of notes she took and learned to cut with razor sharp knives and still have fingers and <laughs> how to fry things and deal you with the spattering that of hot oil. <laughs> it's like I just said, you know, sometimes it hurts when you're cooking. Yes, you're going to get some hot oil on you or a little boiling water. You deal with it. Don't don't pull back scared because now then you're going to spill the whole thing. You just have to. That's part of the deal. So uh art projects i've got easels in the barn for the children three easels one each and all you know all the art supplies they needed any given moment and you know that became the life and then swimming in the river that's nearby because we weren't going to any swimming pools because nothing you know just deal yeah. with what, what you've got it was it was fantastic i mm. mean i don't wish the covid year had gone on but I understand to cut to the headlines today, this whole great resignation thing where people are like you, you know, you've made this big change in your life, yeah. but a lot of other people are too. And it for yeah. other reasons, you left the pastorate and all this church stuff for another reason, but there's a trend right now. And that is COVID forced a lot of people to reevaluate their lives. Mm and huge numbers of people resign resigned their jobs. Others are renegotiating to be home more because they yeah. found what it was like to be with their families more. Others are demanding higher pay and saying, hey, you were counting on us as so-called essential workers stuck in grocery shelves and working in whatever, you know warehouses and all the rest. We want better pay, we want better terms. There's a big social shift going on. It's massive. Where lots of yeah. folks besides me discovered what they really cared about.
1: Yeah. That leads right into my next question. I was going to ask is, do you think people are kind of evaluating and like reprioritizing right now?
2: Yeah. I mean, it's not a question of even thinking they're saying they are all the polls show huge reevaluation. You know, the New York times had a piece that I actually talk about in the book because I had to rewrite this book in the light of COVID because it was very weird. And then I'll get to your question. It, you know, if somebody had read my book, as it was, say, three years ago, because it was a five-year project, they'd say, well, you know, it's, not, it, it's good you're calling for these things, but who knows how that would actually work?
1: Mm.
2: Well, Mother Nature sent a memo fascinating. to us wow. and basically said, all right, Frank, thanks for writing this book. Good idea. I'm going to send everybody home and see what happens. Because the book, That's Fall wild. in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, yeah. Save the Planet, Be Happy. I mean, go yeah. figure. I'm not actually claiming that happened. I'm not saying this was some divine intervention, nor am I saying my book was prophetic, but I will say this, everything I called for in my, the book theoretically was forced on an yeah, entire yeah. nation. Oh, absolutely. Yeah.
1: I was actually wondering when I was reading the book that I was like, I wonder how far into writing this he was. Yeah, well, let, because I, I ask it, that again yeah. here
2: because I'll go back to your question okay. about people reevaluating. And so, and so, that gets <laughs> every newspaper in the, country this morning, will have an essay in it, an op-ed piece or a headline related to the fact that tens of millions of Americans are reevaluating. And all the polls, for instance, of the men with children that that were polled during COVID, after COVID found that about 40% of them said they were going to change their lives permanently, that they had discovered childcare. And now- you know, a huge issue is these idiots in on, on the right wing in Congress of both Republicans and then the so-called moderates in the Republican Party. I, I mean, the Democratic Party are refusing to pass legislation that would mandate paid child leave for both fathers, mothers, non-binary people, paternity leave, maternity leave. They're missing the boat on this because that that is not some legislative agenda coming from Biden. That's a demand of Ameri- the American people. They want uh, tax credits for their children. They yeah. want paid leave for childcare. They want to stay home and work most days at their house now because they got used to their toddler running in and out. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the evidence is in, there's no discussion on this. Yeah. What COVID did was open a window uh, on something that was missing And how it all comes out, I can't say, but it's way past one guy with a book saying this is how it ought to be. (laughs) There are tens of millions of Americans quitting their jobs because they want to keep living this way. They're asking for more benefits. They're demanding help with childcare. They're, they're wanting to, to literally stay put there. You know, I'm talking about not moving so much for their job. People don't want to leave their houses to go to work. They want to keep working from their home. So, what what I wrote about theoretically over the last five and a half, almost six years now, suddenly with COVID, it's like a giant social experiment to test the premise of my book. Yeah,
1: and true. My book, my book thinking. is
2: right. It actually appeals mm. to where people are. So I lament my friends who died with COVID, because I have some friends who did, and I lament the whole process. Right. But the weird thing is in terms of a social experiment, in terms of a spiritual experiment of where people really wanna be with their, with, their, with their partners and with their families and their careers and so forth, um, COVID has really done something crazy and that is it, it is actually confirmed. People's reaction actually confirms what my book says and that is we actually do find joy and happiness in the things right in front of our face, the human relationships career, jobs, education, all of this stuff is overvalued. It's sold to us by an elite in our universities and our media and our corporations who basically act as if the bottom line is earning money and prestige and be defining yourself by career status. Mm -hmm. Everyone out there now after COVID is saying bullshit. I'm defined as a mother, a father, a parent, Mm -hmm. a non-binary person, a gay person trying to have a marriage or a relationship. People are looking inward at their personal relationships again. Um, And so the trend is with my book. It's not with corporate America now. The trend is no longer with Harvard University and MIT and all the elites. It's with people at Harvard and MIT and all the elites saying, why are we bothering to do all this? Mm. Um, How about I make my relationship with my girlfriend work? How about we have a child on a fertility curve that makes sense so we're not doing IVF when we're 48 and trying to have a baby that pushes us into our 50s as young parents. What the hell's wrong with this picture? COVID is making a lot of people reevaluate all this. And that, of course, yeah. is what my book is about. Mm-hmm. So you had another thing you brought up, but I now I forget what it was, but I wanted to get to it. How much of this yeah. did you cause it's I
0: mean, even in the the description on it, it just it brings COVID-19 pandemic into it, it, it described it almost as like a blueprint of coming yeah. out of it. But like you wrote this way
2: before that, right? Yes, I did. And, and the thing is, I mean, there were three steps to this book. I started writing a diary about child care with Lucy because I wanted her to know what had been going on in her life as a young child. I wanted oh. to just give that for her. So I have passages from that in the book. That's how it began. But that's, you know, eight years ago, nine years ago, I was writing stuff down when she was three. If you count that in, this is a 10-year project. If you don't count that in and you count in when I actually started to write this book, it's six years ago. Mm -hmm. And then uh, COVID hit and I had already completed the book. And I had gone through at that point, I think, 23 or 24 drafts. I'd rewritten the book completely. So the second stage after the grandchild diary stuff came. When I started sending some of that material to some of my friends who happened to be sort of sciencey people, one woman in particular, Myrna Perez Sheldon, who teaches in a university both science and women's studies, and she's a fantastic person. They, she loved it, but she kept saying, Yeah, but you know, you ought to back this up with some of the new academic research into the area of neurobiology and so forth that I'm working on. Read this book, try this, do that. Mm-hmm. Do you realize the whole trend? in evolutionary science and evolutionary psychology actually confirms what you're saying. Just give you one example that a while back, it was all about the survival of the fittest, like the hard, the brutal, the Ayn Randian kind of idea of winning over other people. He says, all that's changed. All the new science in the last 25 years says, no, 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 no. That was all wrong. It's the survival of the friendliest. It's all about Mm -hmm. community. It's about caregiving. It's about relationships. The only reason any of us are here is because hunter-gatherers shared what they had and cared for people in the community. It took a village. It's all in that direction. Frank, use this stuff. Yeah,
1: that science was really interesting. Is backing
2: up all, all the things you're finding on a gut level about loving your grandchildren, and this is the most fulfilling part of your life. All the latest cutting-edge science in these areas is backing you up. For instance, a study that she led me to is by a whole group of people on all you know all the continents of the world, there are universities studying this. It started in the university in Israel, Yale, all these other places. Big fact, they were, study- they were studying the neurobiology and chemistry in women's brains after they had babies and how it changed. Oxytocin, the feeling of love, the hormone shifts, the priorities the brain scans, all the modern technology suddenly allowed people to get this out of the realm of psychology and actually into neuroscience. This stuff is real. Love isn't a feeling and a Freudian kind of thing That's to do with how you were attached yeah. to your mother. This is chemistry. I mean, this not that we need to improve, anything. pretty cool. <laughs> and so here's the, here's the weird point, just to back up what I'm saying in terms of the trends in science that weren't available a few years ago. As a control, not because they wanted to study it, but as a control, they started taking the saliva samples, the blood samples, and the brain scans from male adoptive parents, gay and straight alike, to see what the difference would be. They thought would be there the huge difference between how a mother neurochemically bonds with a f- baby she's just born and is breastfeeding. Talk about hmm. wow. close biological close Yeah, yeah. Get. yeah. And, uh, and as a control, let's test her partner, her ma- her spouse a gay adoptive father with a newborn? How do they they connect? So that they could see how different it was for the female response. What did they actually find? That the brain chemistry, the neurobiology, the hormone levels in saliva in men that bond with a, a newborn infant, even an adopted infant that is not a newborn child, say a child you adopt at three, four, five, six years of age, A father, including a gay adoptive parent who puts in that time and forms Mm. a close bond, the neurobiology and how they bond with that child measurable on hormone levels, oxytocin, stuff you can actually see lighting up in the brain is indistinguishable. That's crazy. Indistinguishable from the biological mother breastfeeding her child, the closest relationship we imagine that couldn't be replicated. So what does neurobiology tell us? It tells us that we are, and that includes males, fundamentally evolved as nurturing creatures. Mm -hmm. And so our entire idea that the man is off at work and the woman is at home, and that's going to work out. The reason it hasn't worked out, and people are voting with their feet now and demanding to stay home with their toddler, I'm talking about men, Mm -hmm. is that the entire evolutionary process screams at us, you are not an An Randian striver, you are a nurturer, and you will be happy only when you connect with this aspect of your life. And if your career is getting in the way of that, and or your ambitions or some weird idea of, of masculinity, you are missing out on what actually brings the most joy. And so the whole point of this is not to tell men to change their lives because it's the right thing to do, it's mm-hmm. just a really basic question. You know, What makes us happy? What gives us joy? And so all the research that I stumbled on, you know, when starting to write this book um, and the reason it went through so many drafts is it was just an, a mind-boggling experience to find yeah. that what I had intuitively sort of backed into yeah, actually happened to be where all the cutting science on relationships are now, is now, and that um, it's like it was like opening a Christmas present. I mean, all, all this new stuff. So it made a lot of work. And most of my books yeah. take a year and a half, two years to write. <laughs> But 27 drafts later, and then That's and then why. of course, as I've already talked about a few minutes ago with you guys, when COVID hit, it was insane because it's like all this stuff you're telling people to try out, they're actually being forced to do in a social experiment that, you know, it'd talk about to rebelling, reprieve. talk about don't tread on me. I mean, imagine if the government said, Okay, we're taking away all your jobs, go home. We just are trying this to see if Frank's got a good. Yeah. good <laughs> I mean, then there would be blood in the streets. But no, they yeah, they're... people accepted it because out of Wuhan, China comes this, you know, uh, virus one way or another and all of a sudden it's like, okay, we'll give this a whirl. Well, well now, I mean, and I think people resisted
1: not. even then. Oh, you know severely. what I mean? So, well, yeah. Okay,
0: that so that is a very different retelling of evolutionary history, but it's it's interesting to me thinking about your own story because you have a fascinating story of moving from that like all, all, it's almost the same trajectory in a way yes. coming out of such an intense young upbringing but but especially even with a certain kind of definition of family values that existed yeah. that you I mean but but then coming into a a whole different understanding of of what family values means um, yeah. Would you just share with our listeners like your Yeah. Well, you know, in terms of
2: the actual writing of this book, this process, I gave you those sort of first steps. There was a last step and this is after COVID hit and after HCI press had bought the book and after it was scheduled to come out during the editing process, my editor, Christine Belera is a lovely, lovely woman. Um, 60-something years old, maybe lots of life experience and does a lot of how-to books. A tremendously wise person said, look, Mm -hmm. there's just enough about your background in this book to make people want to ask questions. I know Mm -hmm. you've written about this in your memoirs. You have to set this up and tell them who you are. So, you know, with a deep sigh, I rewrote the foreword of the book in depth thinking, oh, crap, you know, I've written biographies <laughs> about myself on this and so on. I've got to go back now and do this again, Tired. even though they exist in my memoirs, and then make this a thread through the book. So the story I told is that I grew up in a small fundamentalist evangelical mission called Libri Fellowship. That means that the shelter, Libri means shelter in French. My parents started it in 19... 19- 52 in Switzerland. They had moved there in 1947 to do a ministry with young people in cities that had been bombed out during the war. They stayed in Switzerland because Switzerland was neutral in the war and had not been bombed. And so the infrastructure worked and they could catch trains to European capitals and start Bible studies for young people and so forth. And then they had a break with their mission. And in 1954, they started Brie. And it was a very humble little faith work, totally authentic. This was not, my parents were not carn artists and they were not thieves. They were not time of big time. American Christianity it was all left behind and they were out there as completely obscure, unknown people. But because they had this intentional community with an open home and people could come and stay any length of time they wanted for free, and the money was raised literally by faith. They would had a little newsletter they sent out to their donors around the world and who would help them. You know, I spent my childhood stepping over sleeping bags in the hallway. Wow. If I wanted to go downstairs to get something, the house was filled with mostly university students. And in those days, mostly people that evangelicals would have regarded as non-Christians. They literally just came for the weekend, hung around, then stayed a little longer, helped out in the garden, and it had a very organic beginning. So by the time... The late 1960s rolled around. My dad wrote his first book. I was living in a kind of very organic, touchy-feely, you know, Mother Earthy, evangelical-slash-fundamentalist hippie commune. I mean, it was a weird place because we (laughs) had all kinds of people coming by. And they loved my parents because they were generous and kind and open. It was the sing, it was really the best of what evangelical Christianity has to offer. In addition to which my dad was an aficionado of art history and culture, was giving lectures on Bob Dylan lyrics. You know, there were had movie festivals of Federico Fellini or the early Woody Allen films. This was not like anything anybody had run into before no, yeah, that, that sounds labeled so- Christian. And then Roe v. Wade came along. And of course, it all changed because we became the leaders in the evangelical wing of the anti-abortion movement. But before that happened, if someone had come to Labrie, they would have just said, look, it's evangelical, it's fundamentalist. It's Francis Schaefer talks about the inerrancy of scripture on one hand, but then because of all the cultural stuff, it doesn't feel right wing. It doesn't feel Crazy and and closed, and there's a lot of openness there. Whether people have been, you know, had problems with drug taking or they've been gay, whatever, nobody's getting thrown out. It doesn't feel fundamentalist, although the theology was. Then Dad wrote some books, and so my my early teenage years into my young adulthood were spent as the son of an incredibly famous evangelical pastor, evangelist, apologist, Francis Schaefer with best selling titles like the god who is there and escape from reason that were literally now required reading in just about every christian high school college homeschool whatever and then we made this series where i produced and directed it of how should we then live which was on history and culture we toured the us we played madison square garden and all these huge venues in texas to tens of thousands of people you know there was more money on the book table after any given night i mean literally than probably I've earned in the rest of my life as a writer. We're talking, wow. you know, projects we spent the, the the budget for that project, seminar tour included, was upwards of five million dollars oh. that we raised. And this is back in the early 1970s. I mean, so yeah. it's equivalent of maybe Whoa. 10 or 15 million dollar <laughs> projects now. It was really the big time. Jerry Falwell lent us his jet. And Whoa. so I was flying around the country doing speaking engagements in a private jet. Me, in my young 20s, sidekick, nepotistic sidekick of my dad. Then dad died in 84, and I realized that basically I was now in something, I had wanted to be an artist and a filmmaker and a writer, and I had become the nepotistic sidekick and inheritor to this vast network of of activities. Um, Jerry Falwell, who started Liberty University, It was Liberty Baptist in those days. And Pat Robertson, the same week, called me up asking me to be on their board. Mm -hmm. And I'm in my late 20s. (laughs) So this, I I, I was the keynote speaker to the Southern Baptist Convention, filling in for my dad, who was undergoing cancer treatment. And they invited me back the next year to do it again. So I was one step away from becoming Ralph Reed or Franklin Graham, a right-wing, hot shot, good public speaker. Uh, you know, whatever nepotistic sidekick to a parent who's now sick and going to die. And I'm going to be, I'm going to step in. You're like royalty. Yeah. Evangelical royalty. And so I ran away from this and I left and I wrote a novel called Portofino. And before I did that, I got out of the evangelical world and I made four low budget Hollywood movies um, using the reel that I cut to get an agent from the material from my movies I made with dad, but cutting out all the God stuff. And because America pre, pre-Google even more so, and even today lives in insular compartments, you know, like say you could be a NASCAR driver that's winning NASCAR races all the time. But if you're not in a NASCAR, you've never yeah. heard of this guy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, if you're into golf, you know, who they the PGA tour, you can list who's on it. If you're not into golf, you don't even know no who idea. These people are. Yeah. Okay. Well, it was like that. So my father was extraordinarily famous And very, very successful in one area. So if you walked into any evangelical church and said, who's Francis Schaeffer? They'd point to a row of books on the pastor's bookshelf as like de rigueur reading. Um, Go to anybody in Hollywood, say who's Francis Schaeffer? They've never heard of him. So I basically flew under the radar and and had this low budget filmmaking career. And it wasn't going very well because I didn't like these scripts. And I was earning a paycheck. uh, But that was it. And Jeannie, my wife, suggested that I write a screenplay based on my childhood that I was talking to my kids about at that point. Mm -hmm. And actually, it turned into a novel, which was Portofino. And it was very successful, translated into a dozen languages or so, and did extraordinarily well. Um, But with a readership that had never heard of Francis Schaeffer, there was some crossover, just enough for people to say, look, he's written this work of humor, about growing up evangelical, and we don't like it because it reflects badly on his parents. And so I was kind of Mm -hmm. tossed out of the movement. And that's like 15 books ago, and (laughs) I've kept writing ever since, um, and earned my living as a writer, but uh, just an ordinary writer, not a celebrity evangelical writer. No, people are not buying my books now because my dad's name was Francis Schaeffer. People who read my novels have never heard of them. People who read my memoirs are buying them because they've either read my novels or seen me on television doing commentary, whatever but the connection was broken. And then, and of course it completely changed my life because I had been really, you know, excuse the language, but the, I had been raised in this fundamentalist evangelical uh, tradition where men are supposed to rule their children, disciplinary, and then their wives are supposed to submit to them because men are supposed mm-hmm. to be in charge. And the way I put it, and of course I was a young teen father as well. I'd gotten Jeannie pregnant when we were 17 and 18. and the way I, I, I put it somewhat indelicately, uh, and I hope <laughs> your listeners don't find this offensive, but in all honesty, uh, I had been groomed to become a an asshole by divine right. In other in that words, line. we underline that line. We right. we read that. In other words, the worst of everything that a human being does and feels ashamed of later. If you're raised as an evangelical Christian and are a male, you're told, not only is this the right thing to do, bully your wife, lord it over everybody, pounce around as if you're in charge of the universe. This is how God wants you to behave. It's the ultimate blessing of everything that's most wrong with human nature. So when I started to leave, one of the reasons I did is I really loved Jamie and she cha- I changed for her. She didn't change me because I was getting sick of myself. I mean, it is tiresome being a bully. Mm-hmm. It is painful if you love the person you are bullying, thinking this is the right thing you should be doing, telling her what we're doing and so forth. So really, um, I owe Jeannie my life. I mean, I love her, but I owe her my life because my motivation for changing was loving Jeannie. It was not some big theological thing. It was basically because I love this woman who I, I was tired of being this asshole by divine right. And little by little, she stuck with me long enough to give me the room to change. And, and our relationship really shifted over the years. And then the theology shifted with it. And I left and I set some of that up in the book. And then I let it run through the book as a thread because I don't pretend this book's not personal. It's not science with footnotes. It's right. Frank Schaefer's point of view. Which I add somewhat facetiously, Mother Nature has now confirmed with a worldwide (laughs) pandemic. But that's a side issue. Yeah. (laughs) Let's get lucky on that one. It's got lucky.
1: I love that. And I love I just love that you um, what you shared about like that you started to make the changes just because they were practical and personal for you. Mm, Like I just didn't want to be like this anymore. And exactly. I, you also mentioned in the book that she wasn't putting up with it either, which I was no, like, and,
2: you know, there was a lot of ass kicking <laughs> involved, but that, that sort of, that was along the way after, after I had really started to go down that path. And then when yeah. I would revert uh, to my worst self, um, you know, Jeannie would get really properly furious and I'd hear about it, but that's not why, you know, having somebody angry with you is not why you change. I, that was a reaction right. I changed mm-hmm. yeah. for her because I love Jeannie. I mean, we just had an example two weeks ago and it has a happy ending. She's doing fine, but she had a mild heart attack about 10 days ago. So I've spent the last 10 days sort of nursing her. We were in the hospital. I was sat next to her for two, uh, two and three days down there. She had a, a stent put in. She's feeling fine. It's all under control. There's no big permanent damage. It runs genetically in her family. Her brother had two stents put in 15 years ago, but it was incredibly scary, but You know, nothing concentrates the mind with someone you love more than anything to really see their lives threatened suddenly right out of the blue. And it was so crazy. You know, my son, John, drove her to the hospital because she called him. I wasn't there. And then, of course, I heard about it immediately and drove down. And John and her in the OR, when they told her she was going up to the cardiac intensive care unit, said, don't tell, don't tell. Frank until he gets here because he's going to crash his car. And John knows me really well. So he just said, well, you better come down. there doing more tests. So I drove the half an hour down to Beverly hospital and um, everything was fine. You know, they put her up in the cardiac unit and I snuck in early the next day by 5 AM to bring her a little shot of black <laughs> double shot espresso <laughs> coffee. I make her every Good morning man. knowing full well. Um, they had said, you can't have anything by mouth because we're gonna do a procedure <laughs> later. And I knew how that would roll because Jeannie is such, she, she needs her shot of coffee to the point where <laughs> I didn't want to bother to explain this mm-hmm. to the intensive care people, but I needed to, I, I knew that if she didn't get her shot of, of coffee, a little a couple swallows, just nothing more than that, that yes, they're worried <laughs> about her throwing up if she has anesthesia, but when she comes out of anesthesia, they're gonna think she's dead. If she didn't have her coffee, so I got there at five in the morning and gave her a little shot Uh-oh. on the side, and then they did the procedure at two thirty in the afternoon. Everything was fine, but oh,
1: I'm so glad um, to
2: hear that. So I was there with her, and then and then here at home. And the funny thing is, it's sort of like the childcare thing, you know. I've been cooking for her, and bringing stuff up in bed, and now she happens to be out for a nice long walk right now. And I Good. always turn off my cell phone during podcasts, but my cell phone's sitting behind me because hey, in my order of priorities, we will interrupt this if she needs to call me. Good. Um, But uh, having just been through that again, I'm reminded again that um, all the things that I put in my book about what makes life worth living and the biology of love um, are real. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, it has nothing to do with, again, trying to do the right thing. Oh, well, I've been married to Jeannie all these years, so I'll take care of her because um, it's my duty. It's like the greatest pleasure of my life was sitting with Jeannie in the hospital, holding her hand. And she put John Gielgud on reading Alice in Wonderland as a complete escapism. And we both sat there dozing because we were so tired from this experience. Okay. I went, Trey, even though it was that terrible situation. And then the ultimate experience of that, that again, so confirms what my book is about. I mean, really confirmed it in the same way that COVID has. And another horrible price to pay. Who wants your wife to have a heart attack? Right. She was coming out of anesthesia after a two-hour procedure to examine her heart with this the wire and everything they put up through the wrist, through the wrist or the groin, they went through her wrist, luckily, and into her heart and there, and there's the screen and the surgeon came out and showed me the pictures of what they had done and where the stent was and how it all worked. And then I, I stood by the door when she came out and I was holding her hand as we were walking along with the gurney. And I said to her, you know, what was it like before you were put under? Cause there's a certain amount of risk involved. And were you scared? And she says, yeah, I was nervous. And then she said, but I was overwhelmed by another feeling. And I said, what? Um, And she said, I was overwhelmed by the feeling of gratitude for the wonderful life I've had. And I thought, okay, (laughs) you know, you want to post a note on something you couldn't fake that actually shows who you are. That's it. That's Mm -hmm. Genie. So, her thought as she went to sleep in a procedure that can risk your life was one of gratitude for a wonderful life. And I thought, okay, that's it. That's my gold medal. That's all I ever need to know because she's forgiven me so much for all my bullshit mm. that if that's how she was feeling at that, you know, what could be the penultimate moment of your life, um, I, I know I've been forgiven. I know that we really have something good here because that's what she was thinking. And I thought, okay, that's probably that, you know, this is going to be one of the things I remember myself in a similar situation if I was given a chance to think about it. And that is there's a lot of guilt there, but I've been forgiven. I've been redeemed by a woman who hung in there and put our relationship first. And it left her feeling grateful and happy at at a hard moment. And it was like a gift to me. Um, because it was okay. You know, there's uh, so many regrets there, but this journey has been worth it. And I'll guess what, guess what she didn't say, you know, um, I'm so grateful that I went to the Boston school of fashion design and I'm so grateful that you had a bestseller and I'm so grateful, you know, we own, we own a van and, and, and a car and a barn. No, 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 no. It was the life we've had. Mm. Yeah. It wasn't that shit all the stuff in containers on the way from China, more flat screen, this and that. That's not what was in her head. And all my book does is try to pass it on to everybody. Say, look, if, if you want to get where Jeannie got at that moment, you mm-hmm. can't get there through this material possessive consumerist culture. You can't get through the good theology. You can't get there by making your life right with Jesus. You can't get there any other way. You can only get there if you spend, as in Jeannie's in my case, 52 years being forgiven, taking care of each other, working on a life together. So there's a, there, there, there's a real substance to it. And then when the shit hits the fan, that's what you've got, but you can't start then, you know, and building your own rocket ship won't get you there. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, and if you want to know who Jeff Bezos is, to hell with his rocket ship. (laughs) What you really need to ask (laughs) is what's, you know, what does he see in the eyes of the people who know him best? And that's the truth, you know, the truth of my life is walking next to my wife on a gurney holding her hand. That's the truth. The truth of my life is what I see in the eyes of Nora and my little seven-year-old. And if it's delight and wonder and joy and peace and happiness, then something's going right. So who you are is not what you earn and, you know, the definition of success is all wrong in this country. I mean, basically, my book's essential premise is we have to redefine what we mean by success. Yeah. And success is nothing to do with your job title. So the most success and I don't mean this to sound too like, much like one of Jesus's parables or something, but in all truth, seriously, if you go to the corporate headquarters of, say, Facebook or Amazon, the most successful person in the building in terms of literally what brings joy to life. Mm. Okay. If that's the definition of success, it might be an executive, but it also could be the guy in the parking garage. Punching people in and out who goes home and has been forgiven by his life partner, has a fabulous relationship with children and took a job where he was paid less So he could spend more time with them instead of being up in the fancy corner office and trashing everything around him. Mm. And so if we could redefine our definition of success, we actually have a way to have joyful lives because what has gone wrong in our culture is we have an idea of success that actually does not conform to who we are as human beings at our most essential level, which is people who crave love. And so that is the bottom line. If you want to change your life or you want to change people around you and you want to find joy, it only depends on one thing. It's not your income. It's not your talents. It's not the color of your skin. It's how you define success. Because Mm -hmm. however you define the word success is going to become who you try to be. And if you define success in terms of material possessions, career, and job, you will never find joy in this life. Because, not because Jesus said it or it's a biblical tradition or some other tradition or philosophical this or feminism that, nothing to do with that. It's because biologically we evolve to be caregivers. And everything we do that relates to that, the 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 receiving and the giving of love, the receiving and the giving of love, the receiving and the giving of love, if that's our definition of success, the receiving and giving of love, we have a shot at joy. If it isn't, then all that other shit will simply get in the way of the prime directive, which is the receiving and the giving of love. It's not job title. And that's the bottom line of the book, basically trying to redefine our idea of success. And again, COVID is forcing a lot of people yeah. to do that. They're yeah. not putting it in those terms, but that's oh. the bottom line.
1: Yeah. And even just like the amount of mental health that we've seen like come to the surface in this last season, I think it's forcing yeah. people to ask these questions on a much deeper level of like, yeah. really, what do I want for my life? And yeah. what is success? It's and like a
0: survival event. It, it's,
1: it's really, I mean, I I just, anyways, I just love what you're saying so much. And I'm
2: Well, the thing that is, that if you look back it. over your own life, I guarantee this. And, you know, you and I have met a couple of times, the three of us, but we don't know each other well, but I know this about you and I know it about everybody except sociopaths. And I'm not being joking. There are sociopaths running some of our biggest companies. We won't name them, but we know who they are. Uh, you know, where the algorithm at Facebook, for instance, is not geared toward the giving and receiving of love and caring for their clients. It's given towards the bottom line and making a maximum profit. And that's not necessary, by the way. There are there are role models, even in business, who have shown that you can have a very profitable corporation that has room for human values. Those people, And by the way, the corporation- Imagine the future- that. <laughs> the corporations in the future that really want to do well had better get the message from COVID and start gearing the way they treat their employees with paid paternity and maternity leave yeah. and so forth. Yep. If the government can't pull it off because of idiots like Joe uh, Manchin and and Kristen Sinema uh, sabotaging Biden, people are still going to demand that. And the corporations that get with the program and say we're going to put a we're going to put a, a full time high quality Montessori structured daycare center in our corporate headquarters for our white collar. And guess what? We're going to do it in all our factories and packing warehouses too. And we're going to tell our employees they can have a beeper. And if their kid's having a meltdown, the mom or the dad can run off and help. And, or we're going to give paternity leave. And, or we're going to encourage people to stay home with their kids more and come to work less. That corporation for the future is going to be the monster success because we, the people are starting to demand this. It's a slow rumble, but it's coming. And I'm hoping my book helps that along. That Mm -hmm. said, I don't know you guys that well, but I know this about you because you're not sociopaths and your parents that when you get to my age, and I will guarantee this, um, God willing, you you do that. um, As you look back over your life, you will have zero regrets in the area where you gave and received the most love. Zero. All your regrets will be centered around the times you either trashed that or were too dumb to take advantage of it or had other priorities. And now you look back and say, gee, I wish I had done better on that. And I say that about any single person who's listening to this or watching it. Yeah. You will have life's regrets. are never relate to giving or receiving too much love. Never, ever, ever. They all relate to not having enough love in your life every single time and to hurting the people who you owe something to, and who you love. So the greatest tragedy in life is to look into the face of the people who know you best, a child or a loved one or a lover or a partner or somebody you work with and see fear there. That's the greatest tragedy in life, that's it. Um, And if you're a a sociopath and you read that fear and don't care, okay, you are a sick individual. But if if you're not a sociopath or terminally egotistical narcissist, your greatest joy is going to be when the, what you see reflected in the, life, in the, in the, in the eyes of the people who you love and who love you and trust you is trust, joy, contentment, relaxed, be themselves, more themselves around you than they are around anybody else. That's the big gift. Mm-hmm. So if we order our lives to reflect that, they will never be perfect. But but that to me is the bottom line, and that is what COVID has begun to show people in terms of how to how to reorder your life. And it's you know, it's everything my, my book is about, and it has nothing to do with calling people to some higher level of life or you know, some spiritual to-do list, it has to do with just finding contentment in your life. It's a very simple path, mm-hmm. caregiving. Go ahead. Oh. Um.
1: Okay. When we were in New York. Oh, you're going to ask about that? I was, yeah. Oh.
0: But you, well, I'll, I'll, I'll just say it. You said something that was so moving to us. Mm.
1: Um, it's just, we're, we're, um, we're changing gears here.
0: Well, you. That's fine. No, it, it. it's an example to me of what you're describing. Because mm. I feel that I obviously we don't know you well, but from what I know of you, you really do embody this. You've, you've been on such a journey. Mm. that's taken you from this other place where even you described in your book. And um, when you were talking in New York about um, how you've wrestled over the years with the pain of that, and even a lot of your life the last 40 years has been almost like I'm going to set right. What was wrong then in myself and in the world, which is, is beautiful. Um, But you talked about your relationship with Jeannie and, um, I don't remember how you guys got into it in that one conversation, but you were talking about um, that question, like I don't know if I'm a good lover. All yeah, I yeah, I remember it, that. I am a good lover mm-hmm. to Jeannie and my wife, and we yeah. know each. And it, it was such a beautiful. Um, it just stripped away all the extra crap out of it, and it was such a intimate. Um, I don't care how I stack up to the rest of the world right. around me. Right. Just- well,
2: yeah, and and we were we were in a group discussion with Jackie and this was being streamed to a bunch of people, you know, launching her book and talking about mine and so forth. And I don't know how Jackie, I think I was talking about the fact that in Jackie's book, um, which is a wonderful book, by the way, Fierce Love that I was promoting along with my book. Jackie had told this incredible story. I mean, she's a pastor of a church in New York. And so it's, it's well-written. Her book, Fierce Love is a very well-written book. I hope people buy it. But in addition to that, She had told this story about sort of a sexual awakening for her at some point, realizing she was a sexual being, a love affair that she had with someone, not the person she's married to now. This goes years before that. Uh, And I was surprised to find that in the book in the sense that, um, sure, it fits with the book, but I was surprised at her honesty of putting that in. And so I talked about that. and, And I said, and, you know, when it comes to our idea of sexuality and love, the big surprise for me is that pushing 70, um, you know, sex is wonderful with Jeannie, but it, it it has nothing to do with the film version of the great lover and the the sort of um, testosterone driven man who, you know, on a sort of second date or whatever, now they're going to have sex and grab some woman and they're starting to tear each other's clothes off. And he hoists her up on a washing machine or, a you know, another household appliance or a desk or a table and knocks everything off. And I said, you know, love for Jeannie and I at our age, making love is you know we're lying naked next to each other on a on a bed somewhere holding hands and if, if somebody was watching this in a movie they'd be saying well when are they going to get on with it? you know <laughs> when, when are they going to get it on they're talking about their grandchildren this is this and you know they're holding hands they're naked and they're going through oh yeah and to-do lists and so forth and then one of the other of them starts kissing the other person and it's a very gentle lovely exploration and Resting in the knowledge of what gives the other person pleasure, it has nothing to do with a sexual performance. Um, and but the funny thing is, it's it's also incredibly powerful and sexually satisfying. But if you were making a movie of it, they'd be just saying, "Oh, this is this is pathetic." I mean, uh, you know, they're lying there naked, holding hands, talking about household stuff, and oh yeah, did you remember to do this? And then finally, they somebody remembers to actually start doing something, and then it gets very tender and emotional. But it's slow motion, it's tender and emotional, and it has a lot more to do with, you know, I mean, I get an equivalent to the Iron Chef and these stupid cooking shows where they're racing against a clock and they've got four ingredients. This is not how you cook, okay? How I cook is I plant a vegetable garden every year. I dig my garden, I plant what I wanna grow and eat in season. And then I pick it with my grandchildren and bring it into the house. And I take as long as it takes to make something really good, and it may take, you may have to marinate something for three days, or you might cook it all down in five minutes, but it has nothing to do with the energy you're putting in and a show you're putting on. Well, there's an mm. exact equivalent about sex with someone you've been with mm. for 52 years. I'm not having sex. I am loving genie. There's a huge difference. So I, I then concluded by saying, look, I have no idea if I'm a good lover or not. Uh, you know, if you were filming our sexual experiences, it wouldn't, you know, half the time, it wouldn't even look like sex to people because it's just these old people with their bodies falling apart, lying next to each other, holding hands, talking about something. I said, but that actually is sex because this is like planting the garden. Yeah, we're going to get around to cooking something soon, but right now, we're just laying out where the carrots are going to be and putting in my potato bed. It may not look like the Iron Chef, but believe me, this, this there's a direct line from here to the orgasm <laughs> at the dinner table when you eat this, I, you know, three months later. So I was talking about that in terms of a long-term relationship. And a lot of people, you know, there was some chuckling and people oh. asked questions and liked it. Yeah. But my point was that our idea about relationships is all wrong because it's on this performance thing. of being great lovers or like you're in this incredible person or you've got this huge career. Um, It's real life is never about that. You know, real life with children is never about that. It's not the big play thing when you go and this fancy trip and now you're all in Disneyland and so forth. Most of those things are fiascos anyway, because you're working so hard to have a good time because you've spent so much money that everybody's uptight because it never measures up. The really great stuff is unlooked for. It's when Nora walks into my house and goes over and I come over and she's sitting there reading and Mm -hmm. drawing something and then asks me a question and gives me a hug. None of these moments look like the hyped up Hollywood version of a parent with, you know, smart ass dialogue with a child and they've got this vivacious relationship. It's all quieter than that. And of course, Mm -hmm. sexuality with an older couple or any couple, by the way, that knows what's what is never this kind of crazy filmic, insane moment of, uh, you know, fervor throwing yourself around and ripping your clothes off. That's not how it works. It's like, it's, it's like good cooking. Long answer, but it's a, it's a subject that I really feel intensely about. One reason is that sexuality is portrayed so stupidly in film. I'm not even talking about porn. I just mean film or TV shows. It's always this same scene. It's like, has this director actually ever made love to a woman he loves and <laughs> knows? I yeah. mean, you know, <laughs> ha, ha, have has has anybody on this set ever had good sex with anybody? Mm-hmm. Because this is not it, you know. So I kind of approach it a little facetiously and jokingly, but there's something deeper here in yeah. terms of the way our stupid culture does everything. Yeah.
1: Well, we it's were all just all surface.
2: So... It's all bullshit. Yeah.
1: It just was such a. We were so inspired by you and and just hearing your about your friendship and like that your relationship over the years. And um, yeah, we that was like one of our big takeaways. From well, we just, <laughs> I,
0: I love you. The things you talk about in your book, you are genuinely it, yeah. embodying in your life <clears throat> and you you're sharing this wealth of what you know, not mm-hmm. what you know about, but what you actually, you yeah. know, and that I think there's a profound integrity to that, that, mm-hmm. um, even like, do you have such a blunt, raw honesty and passion about it that uh, I just, I love it. I, I really have enjoyed um, just getting to know you a little bit. And I appreciate that a lot. Your story.
1: So we'll yes. wrap it up here. And thank you so much for, for joining us today. And this well,
2: is- it's such a pleasure. It was so nice meeting you guys. So this is a treat for me because, you know, by necessity, we all had to go home after that New York thing. And now the conversation That's- continues. So let's do yeah. it again. I love, love that.
1: Okay, we'll leave you with one last question, and this is something that um, we're gonna be just discussing throughout the season. But what's just like? Could you leave our listeners with one step that they could make towards making some of this change that you're talking about in your book and that we've talked about mm-hmm. today? Just like, is there one thing you could point? Yeah,
2: there to? Is, there is one thing, and it may not be the answer you're expecting, and it refers back to something that I've said before here in this discussion. But now it's a great place to end. Every single thing you do in life, anything you achieve, any failure you have, everything you care about, who you are as a person, will come from one thing and one thing only. And this is my one step to doing better and helping yourself find joy. And that is stop and think about this. How do you define success? Because your idea of what it means to find success in your own life individually will define everything you do and who you are. So right now, the people I'm talking with define success as getting their son to a surf meet. They are on the right track. But if they were defining success as going off for some sexy job interview while their son didn't have anybody to take him to his surf meet, they're on the wrong path. This has practical application. The way you define success will define who you are. And it's very close to Jesus saying, wherever you put your treasure, mm. that's where you will find yourself. In our culture, treasure is success. Redefine success away from corporate America's definition of success, and you will succeed. Redefine your idea of success in sexuality away from your pleasure to the pleasure of your lover. Whether you're gay, straight, or non-binary, and you will actually have more pleasure. You will have a more powerful orgasm if your lover is getting tremendous pleasure from the sex. Mm-hmm. So it's the first shall be last, the last shall be first. Put your treasure where you, where you know, wherever you put your treasure, there your heart will be also. It's all the same message. Redefine success. Your definition of success for yourself and your family and your and and your your life will exactly be who you become. And because our brains are malleable and they change, we can change the definition of success, but you can't get anywhere if that definition is wrong in the sense of removing joy from your life. If you define success correctly for yourself, you can change your life. So that's where it starts. It doesn't start with changing your life. It starts by changing your definition of success. And that's where I would leave people.
1: Beautiful. I love it. Beautiful. Frank, thank
2: you so much. Thank you. It's been a Good. real pleasure
1: love talking with you thanks well so much.
2: much love to both of you and let's do it again
1: all right fantastic that's great okay bye-bye hey. thanks so much for joining us don't forget to check out our website com, to register for upcoming experiences and to see what else is going on
0: and if you enjoyed this feel free to subscribe you can even leave a review keep going see you next time